You are about to listen to Rich Herring's Leicester Square Theatre Podcast with my special guest, Stephen Fry. It's very exciting. It's all free to listen to, which is lovely. But if you want to see what's going on, as well as hear it, and believe me, the height differential between me and Stephen Fry should be enough to be funny for an hour and a half on its own, uh, then you can go to www.gofasterstripe.com slash podcast, where you can either buy just this episode for £3.50 or the whole series of at least seven podcasts. Uh, for £15, which is very good value, uh, with one from Chris Addison. Next week will be John Lloyd, Mary Beard. There's lots of more big names to come. And so uh, please, if you want to donate some money, do go and pay for their video. But otherwise, just enjoy this for nothing. Thanks for listening. Now the actual podcast will start. It's just about to start in a minute. I'm just going to make you wait for it for a bit because you haven't paid anything. All right, you can start now. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Leicester Square Theatre. Welcome a man who, if he becomes Doctor Who, will we tell everyone what his name is straight away? It's Richard Herring! Hello! Thank you! Hello! Welcome to Richard Herring's Leicester Square Theatre podcast. As all the cool kids are calling it, Rehelestaper. Oh, it's good to be back. Oh, where's I Love London gone? He loves London so much, he's had to go out and look at London. Oh, we had such fun before the, before the show. I'm filming today, if anyone gets... We've got a few of these people on film. They're, they're, those are the butlers. Uh, this, that's a nuclear, that man's a nuclear physicist. Am I allowed to show your face or will you get official secrets? It's fine. It's called David. He's, he could create a bomb that could destroy the world. Uh, so uh, it's lovely to be here. Doctor Who, there's going to be a new Doctor Who, as I call him. Uh, I think it should be me, and if it is me, I'm, just put, I'm throwing my hat into the ring. I tried to become Pope, they didn't want that. <laughs> so I'm going to go to be the Doctor Who, and that's what I insist on being called. Uh, and uh, if I am Doctor Who, I'm going to use my TARDIS to track back in time and have sex with every single assistant he's ever had. <laughs> Especially Adric. Especially. I'm going to just bum him just as, as the spaceship's crashing into the planet Earth to kill the dinosaurs. Then he won't mind dying so much. He's, I liked Adric. Do you like Adric? What do you mean you don't? <laughs> Sorry, I meant to be filming you. Pull that, do, do that reaction. Do you like Adric? There you go, that is... There's a man sitting on the front row of my audience who doesn't even know who Adric is, that's how... How much my audience has changed today? We have a big, big star guest, I guess. This is the uh, Slytherin uh, notebook. Yeah, if you, were, if you were watching the video of this, you'd be able to see that. That's the famous Slytherin... I like, I'm in the Slytherin house if I'm in Harry Potter, because I don't like anything to do with Harry Potter, so I bought, I bought this to show J.K. JK Rowling. Actually, it's going to be a bit embarrassing if I don't like anything to do with uh, Harry Potter. So my guest reads all the books now. Uh, so, uh, uh, the news today, uh, or two or three days ago, if you're watching this on video, uh, is that a lot of five to eight-year-old children think that fish fingers are from pigs. Um, a lot of five to eight-year-olds think that bread is made out of meat. This isn't really news, is it? A lot of five to eight-year-olds think that Father Christmas exists. Can't really have a go. Yeah, a lot of five... You know, people five to eight, they don't really know fuck all about it, and they're stupid. They think if they put your, to- you put your tooth under your pillow, a um, fairy will come and give you some money. Fucking idiots. How about if we go to five to eight-year-olds? How about having to go with the men in the House of Lords who are too fucking stupid to, to realise they're going to get caught if they try and give... Get, Bungs from people, sorry, that's got a little bit political, I'm trying to show off. Cause... Uh, and Michael Douglas uh, has revealed that Cunnilingus gave him throat cancer, that is. So that's. So there's a good excuse for you fellas. Uh, so. Uh... <laughs> 
show. Also, cunnilingus cures throat cancer as well. That's why he genuinely said this. It wasn't the drinking and the smoking that gave him throat cancer. It was Catherine Zeta-Jones's clitoris, is what he's saying. I think he's just showing off. Don't think he's show- like going- he's- what he's saying is he's just going on the news going, I really like giving cunnilingus. That's so... Hey, ladies. Uh, <laughs> I think that's what he's going. And Nick Ross... Uh, has said uh, said a lot of things. <laughs> you know, when it's first started, I thought, well, you know, it's good that someone challenges that. Oh no, it isn't. Uh, it's good that we should at least have a discussion. Oh no, we should. We should uh, <laughs> Glick Gross says of child porn. Uh, you know, if someone says to you, "Would you like to see what all the fuss is about?" I probably would say yes. <laughs> What's what all the fuss is about? <laughs> fuss is about is that children are being forced to have sex with adults. Yeah, I'd like to see what all the fuss is about. <laughs> he said some terrible things. He said um, that provocatively dressed women are like banks storing sacks of cash by the door. In that if you stole that money it would be illegal. I think there's that, there's that. You would be breaking the law even if they put it by the door. <laughs> uh, I know, he said, he said West Indians are more like to mug people. Can't argue with that. That is, uh, that's, that's just because why? Because you know, West Indians have some extra. No, uh, they don't. Look, anyway, look, we hate to crack on at that controversial point. I didn't mean it. I was kind of joking. Don't, don't come back, Stephen Fry. Uh, so we weren't quite sure he was going to make it to the theatre, but he always makes it to the theatre. That is what you have to remember about Stephen Fry. Will you please welcome my guest? He is best known as the judge from Spice World. Do you remember him from that? And of course, Armitage Blair from Woof. Will you please welcome Stephen Fry, ladies and gentlemen. Stephen Fry. Oops. Thank you very much, Stephen. Thank you. It's bloody Stephen Fry. How did we get him? How did we get you? So, um, do you uh, remember much about being the judge in Spice World? Uh, that's what people will want to hold. I know everyone will ask you about it. It's the proudest moment of my life. <laughs> I, my only excuse, and it's the excuse every single person was in that film, except obviously the Spice Girls themselves gave as we clustered in little knots uh, outside the stage saying, Why the fuck are we doing uh, Was that we had godchildren and nieces and nephews. Uh, for whose love we could guarantee forever by getting signed photographs from all the girls. And yeah. that's basically why I did it. And at the end of the day, they all signed it. And Victoria said she had read my second novel, Hypotamus. Oh. So wow. I, I worship her. I don't know. She's a, I, she presumably eats books instead of food. Um, but she was very, very kind. And I... I refuse to apologise. I met, I met the Spice Girls. Uh, one, I was on. Uh, I met the Spice Girls the same day I met Richard and Judy. I haven't met many famous people. I'm quite excited. Steve. <laughs> <laughs> off of Twitter. <laughs> um, he's uh, off of Twitter. There you go. Uh, he's, uh, I met them. We were on Richard and Judy. Me and Stuart Lee. Don't know if you remember him. He's just bit off the radar a bit. Uh, he's. Uh, and we were on the same day as the Spice Girls, and the Spice Girls were really excited to meet us, which we were astonished about, because we hadn't really done any TV, but we'd done... Uh, we'd hosted the show on MTV, called MTV Hot, for two weeks, and Mel B and her boyfriend watched that, and she rang him up, 
girl, I'm with those guys. And she got me to sign a post-it note, and then she stuck it to her bare midriff. <laughs> it was very exciting. Uh, <laughs> I did so, a, um, it was the Prince of Wales's 50th birthday, I think, and I hosted a, a show in uh, Manchester, and one in London, uh, for this auspicious event. Um, his 70th, and I know you'll all be incredibly excited about that. <laughs> and he came to the, what they call the line-up afterwards, and the, and the, the, the girls were there, and uh, he stopped, and my job was to introduce them. Um, so I knew their names, and, and so this is Mel, I mean, whatever, and this is Mel B, this is Mel C, this is Mel D, this is Mel E. <laughs> um, and he said, gosh, uh, you're so famous for the man. Every, every, every newspaper I look at is a Spice Girl, isn't Spice Girl? And, and um, uh, Emma said, well, what we're really interested in, is it true that your, was, he, was it your grandfather, Prince Albert? Uh, well, my great-great-grandfather, yes. Is it called a Prince Albert because he wore one? <laughs> and he said, uh, he wore... Well, he wore uh, coats and trousers. <laughs> honestly never heard of one. He said, no, no, it's a Prince Albert, you know. And he looked at me rather help- helplessly and desperate, and I said, uh, it's an article of intimate, <laughs> intimate apparel. He went, oh, good Lord, do you mean... Uh, I said, yes. <laughs> and he said, well, I, I don't think so. Is it for... Is it for men or for women? And I said, for, well, for men, I think that's why it's called the Prince Albert. <laughs> He said, why would this be thought of? Uh, <laughs> I said, I have no idea. And I asked the girls if they had any uh, items of intimate jewellery on them. And uh, they said, no, they didn't have any, anything no. velvic. Um, and so I managed to get a joke out of it. So, uh, theirs is obviously due for a cervix. Um, <laughs> Uh, uh, their vulva um, Prince Charles would be a good guest to have on this he, we, I, I could just say ask him a few questions uh, yeah. so if you know you could I'll get his number after and right. see, see if he'll come down uh, but of course the, the Prince Albert is actually named after the uh, the son of, of Queen Victoria exactly Bertie just trying to get on yep. QI <laughs> <laughs> with my amazing knowledge Prince Albert's named after Prince Albert. No, 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 no. Do you remember being in Woof? Do you remember the, the children's show? Yes. Woof? I don't know. It was How good, you wasn't knew it? that? I, I do my research. Wow. Didn't mention it in your autobiography, but I think I, that is. It was I, about. It's a bit like Big John, Little John. It is an Andy Kaufman. It's uh, the son of the Big John. It's the one who looks like Andy Kaufman. That's something from last week. Don't worry. They're, they're confused. Uh, but Woof is about a boy who turned into a dog. Oh, beautiful. So it's dog. very similar to Big John Little John. And it, it, it starred Lionel, um, Lionel Jeffries. That's really why I wanted oh, to do it. Who was in lots of Peter Sellers films, and he's the um, um, Caractacus Potts' yes. father in Chitty Bang Bang. You know, P O S H and all that stuff. Wonderful man. I mean, yes. genius, absolute genius. And he played the Marquis of Queensbury in the Peter Finch uh, Oscar Wilde film. So uh, uh, he was a, he was incredibly funny and extraordinary man who just about every other word said cunt. Um, <laughs> he was he was he was eighty and and. <laughs> sort of like, it made the edit uh, was very difficult. <laughs> <laughs> it really did. <laughs> it's uh, where we are when you're counting ready. That sort of thing in the right time. It's just that the poor boy that had a chaperone was hidden around the corner. It was the dog. It was fine. The dog wasn't offended in the least. 
but it was good fun. Good. Well, look, I, I'm a, I've been a mass fan of yours because the when I became really interested in comedy was just when everything was exploding around your career and the young ones. And but before that. Uh, I, I remember Al Fresco, which I was God. obsessed with, God. but, and I hate uh, Brideshead Revisited as a result of this. It was on the same time as Brideshead Revisited. It was a bit of a clash. Uh, and it? my mum loved Brideshead Revisited. And, one, and this was like, it was only 1982 or 1983, yeah. but there were no video players, nothing was ever repeated. And I remember being just so, I've seen oh. maybe some of the first series, yeah. and, then, and then it was on the second series, maybe, I don't know. I'd definitely seen some episodes, but it was. Devastated that I couldn't watch it, so I now hate Evelyn Moore. <laughs> <laughs> he married uh, a woman called Evelyn Moore. Do you know that about Evelyn Moore? He married another Evelyn. <laughs> I just I know I've got I know a lot of they were, uh, they, facts. They were, they were known as he Evelyn and she Evelyn. They were. I knew yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> So do you remember? What, do you remember? I don't remember much about it. The only joke I remember from uh, from Al Fresco was they were doing a Robin Hood thing, and it said, "Will Robin Hood save Maid Marian? Will Friar Tuck eat some food? Will Scarlet's jerkins looking very nice, isn't it?" <laughs> and that's the only joke I remember from it. <laughs> well, I read the joke. Well, it was such a see you, um, little John, staff all awry. You will jerkin off, and you sort of, and they thought that was too strong, so they just changed it. But do you remember much about Alfresco? Well, it was a strange time. We had been so incredibly fortunate. Uh, three of us, had, uh, four of us, in fact, had come from the Edinburgh Festival, where we'd been fortunate enough to win the Perry Award. It was the first year of the Perry Award. And uh, it was myself and Hugh Laurie, who um, is a hospital cleaner or something now. <laughs> and, um, uh, and then... Uh, and Emma Thompson and, uh, and uh, Paul Shearer. And we did the show, and every night, virtually, we did the show, someone popped around backstage. And first of all, there was an Australian who asked if we wanted to tour Australia after we did it, and we thought that was a fantastic idea. Mm-hmm. Um, it was the year 1981 where, it, in those days, it was really rare. We'd beaten the Australians at the Ashes. Now it's a common occurrence. We must get bored by it. But, um, and then someone came to the BBC saying, they, could they show the show on on BBC, the Footlight Show. And we came, this is extraordinary, because we had all imagined. I thought that I'd go back to Cambridge and quietly grow tweed and um, <laughs> become a, an academic of some kind. Hugh had his eye, for some reason, on the Hong Kong, Hong Kong police force. <laughs> he'd, he'd read that they were corrupt, and he saw himself as a kind of... a, a, a sort of broom going in there to clean them up. A maverick... You know, in those white creased shorts that they were, uh, <laughs> rooting out, refusing to be bribed and so on. Uh, Emma, we did know, was definitely going into the business. It was just apparent the moment we saw her, she was going to become an actress. Um, and then someone from ITV came around, um, a little researcher called John Plowman, and then later on began to run BBC Comedy for many, many years, was responsible for all kinds of programmes like Amphab and whatnot. Uh, and they asked if we'd do a show for, uh, for, for Granada. And we said, yes. And they said, we wanted to have you in, but you're like, you know, sketch comedians from, let's face it, the rather traditional end, Cambridge Footlights and so on. So we're going to add um, some other people. And we found this guy who's just come down from art school in Scotland, Robbie Coltrane, and uh, this guy who's just um, graduated from Manchester University, um, uh, Ben Elton. And so we all got together to make the show... Al fresco, and uh, it was 
That is honest, eh? Uh, <laughs> it was good. Young people like well, thank I you. I've been watching this bright century this is But it was an extraordinary experience. It was our first, first experience of television. And then at the same time, Ben was writing The Young Ones. And I can actually remember the time being in the Midland Hotel. Uh, in a sort of, I suppose in a desperate attempt to get into The Young Ones, because the first series had just shown, and we thought it was fantastic. And Rick was up there visiting Ben and Rick Mail, and... Uh, and he was like, you know, what are we going to do for the second series? And, uh, um, uh, and I said, well, why, why don't you, why don't you play a college from Oxbridge, say, <laughs> at University Challenge? That's brilliant. We shit all over you. I said, oh, yeah, well, yes, it could be done that way. Um, and so there was an episode in the once they came and, yeah. You don't need to tell me, I know all about it. Oh, I can remember yeah. lots of these shows. I've just remembered Ironic Monty from Al Frasca. That was a good oh, bit. Yes. Ironic Monty isn't buried here. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> uh, I think that was Ben. So, so it's all flooding back to me. But yeah, and I, remember, I actually saw the, uh, the Cambridge Footlights on TV as well. And there was, a, there, was a, there was a joke in that, which was, I think it was you and Hugh, but it may not. That might just be my memory. Where going, oh, I'm very embarrassed if people you know, ask me which university I went to. I don't want to say Cambridge because, you know, I'll be judged. Mm-hmm. So I just say, you know, I just say we went to Oxford. <laughs> uh, and I remember really finding that hilariously funny. <laughs> then I went to Oxford and didn't find it so funny anyway. <laughs> uh, uh, I think I just used it the other way around. I think we always used to do that. The, the next generation of uh, Footlights, uh, I remember going to see, because um, they asked they go to see their show, was included in Newman and Badil. Who, uh, yes. And, uh, and um, Dave Badil had a very good thing about being, and it was a routine about being um, at Cambridge and having a Jewish mother, he said, uh, you know, my mother is so proud that I've gone to Cambridge, I can't tell you. If I was drowning, she would shout out, help, help, my son who goes to Cambridge University is drowning. (laughs) (laughs) Very good. And I've been, I've been, um, I've been researching you properly, like, because I thought I should do a proper job because you're like, not like Chris Addison or someone. <laughs> like a prop. It's properly. I just use Chris Addison as a warmer. <laughs> so I've actually been reading. Uh, I've reread. I've, I wanted to read both of your uh, autobiographies, but I didn't oh, quite I get time because I I was going to skim this <laughs> my, my washbox. I have read this before, but I really massively enjoyed this. I have okay. to say that I think uh, if anyone's got any even uh, just an intellectual or or. Uh, adolescent child that they should everyone should read this book because it's I mean it's a fascinating story of how you went through uh, public school but were a slightly naughty boy I was expelled from a number of schools yeah. Um, and yeah I ended up in prison in fact yeah. uh, when I was 17 and uh, that in was Puckle Church uh, Puckle Church uh, remarks sounds like it's been made specially for you that doesn't exist we didn't call them um, um, prison officers or screws we call them stewards. Uh, uh, the head prison staff was the butler. No, it, it, it may sound as if it had little roses around the door, Puckle Church, but it was actually a very pretty vicious place. And uh, I, uh, you know, I fitted right in. I'd, I'd been to boarding school since I was seven. This was nothing. It was absolutely nothing. Um, and there was a lot of there was a lot of violence. Um, uh, there were a lot of illiterate. Children, basically, I mean, people between 17 and 21 uh, from the Welsh and far, uh, far western reaches of Cornwall was its catchment area. And I, I remember teaching this Welsh boy to read. It was quite, he, he was to share the cell. So I can't, I can't make words out on that. And so I, 
So I slowly started to teach him to read, and um, I got a job um, painting little soldiers, which are little enamel soldiers. I just do the white crosses on their backs. They were red coats, as in the American War, and someone else would have done the red, and I yeah. did the white little white crosses. And then on Sundays, I got the job of playing the piano for the hymns. I'm not a very good pianist, but I can just about manage it, and that was thrilling. And well, the Bishop of Bath and Wells came to me. And I used to... Uh, I know it sounds insane. And I used to... to visit, he wasn't being... No, no. <laughs> uh, or well, just there were quite a lot no, of young lads around. It was, it was a sweet <laughs> shop for him. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, he came, bless his, bless his socks. And, and I, I used to go rather crazy on the end of the hymns. I used to do these sort of classical music arpeggios at the end of it. You know, dum, 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 da 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 <laughs> and at the end, the, the, the Bath, uh, Bishop of Bath and Wells had us all in a circle with the prison officers behind, looking very stern. And he was talking about, um, about how Jesus had forgiven us all and everything, and that our lives were certain to be turned around and all this kind of stuff. And everyone was going, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he said, now, does any of you have a question for me? Any question you like, um, really? Uh, and, um, and you can see the prison officers going, I said, um, well, my Lord Bishop, there is one thing. He looked rather startled and said, yes. I said, it's so, uh, Majesty's prison issue soap. He said, yes. I said, it it doesn't lather, it doesn't float, um, it isn't perfumed. Um, All it can really be said to do is keep you company in the bath. Um, I wonder if you might be able to do something about it. He said, well, I'll pass the word on. <laughs> and then everybody drifted away. The prison officer grabbed me by the shoulder. I thought, I'm in real trouble. So the bishop wants to speak to you. So I was kept back. He said, I, I know I should never ask this question. Those of us who visit prisons never do. But why on God's green earth are you here? <laughs> so it was a, a peculiar experience. And then I... Um, I, I, this, I, I was, what, 17 by this time, and I was thinking life was a bit too late, but I thought, well, if, I, if I get out without a prison sentence, because I'd been going all around Britain on someone else's credit card, and I'd stayed at the Ritz and places like that, um, I had a really fantastic time. It was before, <laughs> it was before the magnetic stripe, you just had to do a, a signature, and that was it, really, as long as you looked plausible. Um, then it was fine, and I, I wore these sort of suits and... And detachable collars, and, you know, it looked preposterous, like something out of Gatsby. And, and um, um, but I thought I might get away with a non-custodial sentence. And my parents, bless them, um, said my godfather, who was a QC and, and knighted, um, and, and this court had never seen anything like it. This huge figure, famous lawyer, Sir Oliver Popplewell. Um, and um, I thought he's going to ruin it. He's going he's to be so grand. That they're going to say, well, bloody hell, we're going to send him to fucking prison just because you're going to afford this bastard to come down here like that. Um, but fortunately, he played it played, played very, very meekly, and I got two years probation. And in the first year, I went to Norwich City College and did A levels and got a got a, um, a, a Cambridge entrance. And at the end of my first year at Cambridge, I went to my senior tutor and I said, I've got something really exciting to tell you. He said, What's that? I said, Yesterday, 
I came off probation. <laughs> I said, you're on probation? <laughs> I said, yes, you might want to look at your admission cards and forms, because at no point they ask your schooling, they ask what teams you played for, they ask your interest in theatre. At no point do they say, are you on probation? <laughs> It was never asked. I never answered. <laughs> Got away with it. You know, it's, it's an amazing story about isolation. I think it, it just really speaks about adolescent isolation mm. and, and confusion and confidence, but also you know completely. lack of confidence. It's, yes. such, it's just such a beautifully written. I mean, it's a love story as well, which is, very, which is very very touching and, and beautiful. But you know, I genuinely, it's a, I, I love this. You, you wrote to yourself uh, when you were sixteen, I think, to, mm. and to myself not to be read until I'm twenty five, yeah. which is just an amazing. Uh, amazing. I know what you'll think when you read this, you'll be embarrassed, you'll scoff and sneer. Well, I tell you now that everything I feel now, everything I am now is truer and better than anything I ever shall be. Uh, uh, This is me now, the real me. Every day I grow away from the me that is writing this now is a betrayal and a defeat. And it goes on like that. But I think that's exactly how you feel when you're 15 and 16. You think you're... And you do sort of feel... And as an adult, you feel you're leaving that behind and you sometimes do feel you've betrayed something. Absolutely right. I do feel I've betrayed my younger self. My younger self could have a more emotional response to the arrival of spring or to the sight of a sunset or, <clears throat> indeed, to love itself and to feeling and to poetry had a, a visceral and a powerful effect on me. Um, there's a line of a, a CDL poem, but, a, but it's a beautiful line, which is, can we ever hope to recapture that first fine, careless rapture? And, and it is true, and you just think it is something relatively exterior to one's own emotional life, like music. I can remember hearing certain pieces of music on a, on a wind-up gramophone that had been my grandfather's, and I will never have as great an emotional response to that music, no matter if, if I paid £20,000 for the finest system, or even a live orchestra to play it for me. It wouldn't move me as much as hearing that music then. Because when you're ripe and open to some emotional experience, and it usually is one's teens, then everything floods in and it can never be as powerful again. And so, you, and if you slightly know it, and I knew it because I was precocious and in as much as I read a lot of books, so I knew from writers that they felt that. So I knew it was inevitable that I would go out into the world, Wordsworth called it the world of getting and spending, and that it would be a, a lesser world than although we're shamed as teenagers of spots or the amount we're growing or whatever else it may be, we know inside that the republic, as it were, the eternal republic of the adolescent is a kind of paradise compared to the horrific world that we all inhabit now (laughs) as adults. Um, And I think it's our duty to our children and to the young to remember it. Yeah. And, and to see them that, however peculiar they look, however odd their language, um, <laughs> they, uh, they, they do feel inside with an intensity, a passionate intensity, that um, we've often lost. Yeah, I think so. It'd be a good question to go to an emergency question now. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, no, sorry I, think, I, just, I just really like the idea of punctuating that by asking Stephen Fry, have you ever tried to suck your own cock? <laughs> It's, um, it seemed like the right moment. The, t- well, talking about people betrayed. are going out crying that they're leaving. You really want in to tears. stay for this answer? They thought we were coming to a comedy show. I look the, at his chair. I'm going to have to go. This and is not just crying. an answer. It's going to be a demonstration. <laughs> he's still going. Um, he I, looks uh, like he's a, could be in the English Defence League, and then he did the most camp little. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Uh, it would be very astonished if any man here said they hadn't attempted yeah. that act. Um, I'd be very impressed by those who had achieved it. Uh, there seem to be two methods. One is the what you might call the forward curl, and the, um, the other is the backward somersault. Yeah. Uh, neither should be performed in public. Uh, and um, in my friend, frankly distressing, so near yet so far. Um, I bl blame it down to the fact that nature unfortunately gave me a really sh short, stubby tongue. Um, uh, <laughs> I've seen it done, um, obviously. Um, um, uh, <laughs> the, um, Tom Dryberg, who used to be chairman of the Labour Party back, back in the day, uh, wrote, he was one of the most shocking scandalous figures at the time but, uh, he wrote a marvellous autobiography called Ruling Passions and he writes I remember reading this when I was about 15 because I read every single book there was to read that in you know, one book led to another like a, like a kind of hypertext link uh, nowadays on the web was the bibliography a book would have in the back of it a bibliography books that were sources for the writing of that book so I'd go to the library in Norwich uh, with a great list of, and then pull out any book that was anything to do with man-on-man -man action and, 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 uh, or anything close to it. And Tom Dryberg was very famous for having an affair with Lord Boothby and uh, who was also having an affair with um, the Prime Minister's wife, Macmillan's wife. It was a very complex web of, of sexual intrigue back in those days. And um, he, watched, um, he, he watched Nijinsky do it. Um, and he said it was one of the most... Primarily, primary beautiful act he had ever witnessed. This, this stunningly beautiful ballet dancer, Carl Tightly. Um, and Nijinsky apparently called it recycling. Um, <laughs> he said this um, is much potassium, it's very good. Um, so there you are. It is, but I, there, there may be men in the audience, and if there aren't any of these who've had this feeling, then, once again, I have to feel alone. As you know, the job of the comedian is to express the thought and hope that it's one common amongst others. Um, so, you know, like when you're fingering and you oh. Um, so that kind of one, when, when you realise that is just you. But no, this is, this is where, you, where you wake up convinced that you've done it. You, in your dreams, you actually have given yourself a blowjob. And you think, that was, that was brilliant. No, it was a dream. So, I mean, it, it, it's, you know... It's the old joke, isn't it? Why, why do dogs lick their balls? Because they can. <laughs> so, anyway. And I do have some Come questions. Um, that was very thorough. Thank you. <laughs> As you expect. <laughs> I, can't, uh, I can't wait to ask Mary Beard about that next week. <laughs> uh, so, uh, Mary Beard just does remind me. It's uh, just a wonderful story about... The great Kenny Everett, whom some of you will be too young to remember, but who was a magnificent uh, comedian, disc jockey, all kinds of things. Very, very funny. And he got away, he and Barry Crown, his writer on his TV shows, got away with the, the character who's most famous for her. Oh, and the best possible taste! Um, um, who, was, who was called Cupid Stunt. That was her name. Um, and for two series, we said, we really liked that. Uh, they had a fun, funny one, you do. Um, uh, uh, Cupid Hang on a minute. <laughs> Oh, no, 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 no. We Cup Cupid stunt is a... That's a spoon that you can't possibly... For two series, you got away with that. And you, uh, we're not allowing it. And so for the next series, they changed the name to Mary Hinge. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't think, 
<laughs> oh, that's fine. That's fine, yes. Oh, thank goodness you've seen sense. It, 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 it reminds me in a small way of the thing that happened the, the Disney company some, some years ago, uh, in the early days of the uh, uh, inter-office e- e- email um, uh, there was a very stern, from Michael Eisner, who ran Disney, stern memo saying, if any employee of the Disney Corporation is found to have used the phrase, Mauschwitz, <laughs> of this beloved company, they will be summarily dismissed. Within seconds, people were saying, did you get the memo from Dachau? <laughs> <laughs> I just, you know... It's that old truth, you can put chains on them but they'll sing. You know, it's, it's, you can't beat the human spirit in the end. Along with my emergency questions, I have some questions from Ben uh, Evans, who is uh, 12 years old. He's uh, Chris, Chris Evans' son, not that one. No, not the one from the Avengers, the one who, from Go Faster Stripe. His son has written me a list of questions he would like to ask Gosh. you, so I'm going to come back to these as they go. Okay. I know, well, maybe I shouldn't tell you which ones are his and which ones are mine, yeah. to be honest. <laughs> Um, uh, why were you the bad guy in The Borrowers? Interesting point. Yeah. I, um, I think my height, the height might have made me, even, even in miniaturisation, yeah. might have made me quite a small borrower, might, might have a tall borrower. Yeah. Also, um, in the end, when you're an actor, once you get your equity card, your, your, your SAG card, your, your Screen Actors Guild card, you have to look yourself in the face and be honest. One of my favourite lines, um, I am to be passionate about almost all films, but I have a very soft spot for the Don Siegel uh, Dirty Harry movies. The first one was Dirty Harry, the second one you may remember was Magnum Force. And, um, and in it, Clint says, uh, you're a good man, Briggs, and a good man knows his limitations. Um, and that's the sort of running line of the thing, you're a good man, but a good man knows his limitations. Uh, I'm not sure how good I am. But I try to believe that I know my limitations when it comes to film acting. I I am not going to get the scripts that Ryan Gosling has just turned down. Um, It's just never going to happen. It's unfair, it's beastly, but there are parts, um, Nazi gauleiters, um, snooty lawyers, um, pompous judges, and um, vicious, in this case, scientists... Um, that are somehow more likely to come my way. And it would be stupid to turn them down, awaiting the being asked to play the next Bond, because, you know, it just isn't going to happen. So it's realism. And, and actually, the other thing is it's fun. I did a... One of my first proper Hollywood movies I did was with... Um, uh, it was an extraordinary cast. It was with Meg Ryan and Tim Robbins um, and the, the fantastic Walter Matthau, uh, who was a really, truly great, and he'd worked with... You know, Cary Grant, he, he did the best of his Presley movie, um, Kid Creole, which is just a magnificent film. And, uh, and he, used to, he used to hold his shoulders as if he had his, um, you know, his coat hanger still in. He, that was his walk. And uh, every time I came into the makeup, he was playing Einstein. He would take my hand and he'd say, Will you let go of my fucking hand? Jesus Christ, will you let go of my hand? Like that, and of course I was just holding it. And eventually I'd pull it away. You fucking British, you're so fucking polite. (laughs) Why do you tell the old man to shut up? uh, But he was just, he was bliss. And he said uh, there was a a moment where uh, 
there was a bit of a, a going on with the, the leads. Um, and he said, you know how fucking lucky you are not to be a star? Have you any idea? And I didn't really know what he meant, because obviously I thought being a star would be great. It was nice to be in the film, you were treated nicely. And then I did a film with John Travolta, and this was the point where John Travolta was just zoomed up again. Um, after, after Pulp Fiction, you know, he just suddenly, he was getting paid on this movie $21 million, um, which was $1 million more than the highest that had ever been paid. That was what his agent said. John will do it for, for, you know, for the $20 million that whoever it is got for the previous one plus one. So he was getting paid $21 million. I was getting a fraction of that. I mean, almost not a half. No. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, and, uh, and it had in it, it had Kathy Bates, it had William Macy... Um, it had the um, fabulous, I'm going to forget his name now, which is awful, who plays Tony Soprano, which, which he, Oh, I forgot his name last week, James Gandolfini. James Gandolfini, uh, James Gandolfini was in it, uh, telling me that he was about to do this HBO thing about, uh, about gangsters. I said, ooh, that sounds good. Um, and, uh, Does he need a butler? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> and it was just an incredible cast. And John Lithgow, wonderful John Lithgow, was the judge. There was a big courtroom scenes in it. And there was JT, as he was known. <clears throat> and uh, it was lit by Conrad Hall, Connie Hall, who's considered, you know, one of the greatest cinematographers in the history of Hollywood. He did Bitch Custody and the Sundance Kid. I mean, he was just genius. Um, everybody on that set was wonderful. And, and JT was perfectly nice. Um, but he'd have a conversation, and he'd suddenly just disappear. The director would call us all together and say, now in the scene, I want, where's John? And he would have gone off to, to JTville, which was uh, three huge trailers, and a line of motorbikes and golf caddies, and um, just deciding on which way he wanted to go from his area to the set. You know, he'd just, no, I think I'll go on the motorbike this time. You know, and, then, and one of the offices was his staff, and one, one of the trailers was his staff. The other was for his kitchens. He had a sushi kitchen and an ordinary kitchen. You know, and the other was for himself. And so he was looked after. <laughs> and um, Robert Duval, who was in the movie, who's one of my favourite actors, you know, he played Tom Hagen in The Godfather, and won an Oscar for The Apostle. He was an extraordinary, brilliant actor. <clears throat> and he said, you see... What you don't understand, Steve, is we're on this movie because the director wanted us in this movie and the producer wanted us in this movie. They, they could cast anybody they wanted. They said, no, oh, we'll have Stephen Fry for that part. We'll have um, Kathy Bates for that part. But the lead, the studio wanted Johnny J. And he knows that. He sees us talking together about that play we did. Oh, we were in that movie and we're laughing and we're giggling. He has the whole movie on his back. The studio on his back. If he doesn't make money back, he's he's a failure, and he's scared. He's just scared because he's a film star, and it's it's one of those strange things. God, you know, punishes those who uh, whose prayers he answers. It's it's, it's, a, it's a really is. It's, it's just I've never met a happy film star. It's honestly true. I've met quite a few because of BAFTA and things. You meet them. The one the ones I meet who are happier either those. Who are, I won't say over the hill exactly, but who don't need to worry about being a film star, Warren Beatty, Warren Beatty or something, just a relaxed guy, Dustin Hoffman now. Apparently he was a nightmare when he was at, at his height. I mean, real, real trouble, but now it's just the funniest. This is honestly true. <laughs> Dustin Hoffman, I'm so nervous. It was about the second BAFTA at Film Awards I was presenting, and Dustin Hoffman was there. And we were going down the stairs together at the Grove House, and he tapped me on the shoulder and said, I'm really, really sorry. Would, would you mind very, very much? Signing my 
is your autograph for my daughter? And I said, no. <laughs> no, that would be fine. And, and I said, thank you so much. That's really kind. I thought, fuck, the world has gone completely upside down. <laughs> I've just signed Dustin Hoffman's daughter's autograph. Did he stick it on his own son? No, he That's didn't. the question. <laughs> Because unless they do that, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't mean a thing. Yeah, I know. And parade around with it like that. <laughs> I'll ask one of our, one of that did well. That that was a good question from Ben. Yes. Didn't good. expect it to lead that far. No, I can't, sorry. I don't know what. No, I'm very glad. This is what this this podcast is all about. I don't know what tone of voice to read this one in. Why did you agree to do Thunderpants? <laughs> um, that's what I'm guessing. Or it could be. Why did Why did you agree to do Thunderpants? Leslie Phillips, <laughs> Simon Callow, and Rupert Grint is yes. the answer. Um, I'd met Rupert along with the other um, kids in the movie, <laughs> of the Harry Potter movies, and also the director was a friend. And it was one day in the courtroom. And to be perfectly honest, I didn't read the script. Um, <laughs> uh, Just thought, I, I'm, I'm not a judge in that. Spice World, I can do a judge in... I can, <laughs> I can, I, on this, I'm going to give you another bombshell, Judy Dench doesn't read her scripts. <laughs> she actually doesn't. She just, uh, she, she has, you know, to, to all her, her agents, says, I think you should do this one, she goes, okay. Um, and she says, I think you should do this one, she goes, okay, I won't. And it's that simple, fine, it's easy. Um, I, I usually read scripts. Um, the Hobbit, this is... Um, this is a, this is, I'm not sure I should say this, but... Go on, say um, it. This isn't really going out anymore. I've never read The Hobbit. Um, really? Um, uh, <laughs> Hold on. Hold on. Real short. I wish I'd had that. It's um, a Harry Potter in the front row. He's grown up a bit. He's got a couple of tattoos. I've gone really out of focus. I think I touched something, Chris. That's Sorry. a sleeve. You pull those on. Um, and I... Um, on the flight to New Zealand, which is a long flight, yeah. you'd think I'd have time to read The Hobbit. Yes, I had it, uh, I downloaded it onto my, my electronic reading device, because I'm not allowed to say iPad anymore without people hating you. Um, and uh, so I thought, I'll read, I'll read The Hobbit. And, and something about in a, in a hole in the ground that lived a hobbit. Um, I thought, all right, I got the point of that, I think. Um, uh, now... Uh, the great. To be fair, it'd be quicker to read the book than it would to read the script, I'm guessing, in that particular. <laughs> then, I thought my, my character was called the Master of Lake Town, and I thought, oh, there's a lot of this. Um, there's a search function, so I just put in <laughs> the Master. Um, and, uh, I just went to all the bits that I was in. I said, oh, that seems a reasonable part. And uh, put the um, iPad down and read another book. Um, <laughs> So, to this day, I haven't read The Hobbit, but I'm really looking forward to seeing how it all turns out. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm sure it'll be wonderful. It'll be another 15 years yeah. before the final part's out, though. It was good. They, what they put Tim from The Office in it, which is always... A, yeah. that's, a good, that's the second best thing you can put in, in a film. Tim from The Office, and it'll be fine. The first being Benedict Cumberbatch, of course. Well... <laughs> No, He's you. A, no, well, I'd be. You know, I'm, no one asked me to do film, Steve. If you could put in a word, and that would be good. All right. I, tr- I tried to call him Steve there. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to get away, just trying to get it more and more casual. Anyone ever call you Steve? No, very no. rare. Americans. 
Basically, uh, no, it's, you've got to put a sh- I have a running joke about putting a, a oh. Shrek. I'm trying to, I'm trying to uh. r- run it into the ground and destroy it. Next, one man laughed at the, you know, but I tried to, you know, when you get a successful catchphrase, you yes. kind of want to destroy it fairly quickly. Yep, so I find out to do that. It's like, I love in Wayne's World, um, the, uh, the second one in Wayne's World, they, you know, they have one of the executives, one of the uncool executives going, that's really good not yeah. uh, and it's like by the second that, film it's already uncool nah, to do, to do yeah. it's like it's like when your mother says no oh, that was turns of these balls <laughs> oh mother please your mother said <laughs> she had a go <laughs> oh. what is this isn't an emergency question this is my deep research what is your favourite pinball machine oh, oh my goodness that's going back. I it mean, is. obviously now you can have them on your electronic portable not, tablet device. Not as good. But originally um, there was one in the Students' Union of the Norfolk College of Arts and Technology, which is one of the... I think it was after the th- third place I was expelled from. And, um, and it's... Uh, I can't remember what its theme was. They always have a theme, don't they? they? Do. Um, the, 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 well, I kind of got into pinball machines in a big way in the kind of late 80s, early 90s. Yeah. And they'd become slightly computerised as well. Yes, there was sort of a, not, that's not But true. I like the Adams Family pinball. I don't know if you ever played it's that one. Adams, no, yeah, no, it was, I mean, that was the Adams Family pinball. It was, it was yeah. Hey. yeah. Hey. I thought there'd be more pinball fans in the audience, but yeah, <laughs> there was one about the old one. The first one I ever played was in France, and it was uh, based on Kiss, the, the rock band Pit. Kiss. Kiss, I was going to call them. That would be even better. <laughs> and, I, and I got a credit, and, no, and I was on my school trip, and, none of the, and I, I think I got the high score in it, and no, none of my... That's, that that's sound when, it, when, you, when, you, yeah. when they rack up the thump, thump, yeah. thump, thump replays. It's yeah. the most beautiful sound in the world. It's fantastic. <laughs> Though um, you, you, you also did get picked up by a guy in a pinball. I did here yeah. in, um, that's not my favourite necessarily, no. here in London's Piccadilly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I never got picked up. I, well, I remember yeah. once a man asked, was watching me playing. They used to have one in the bottom, in, downstairs in the Virgin Megastore, which is gone now on Oxford Street and I remember a very nerdy guy and I was walking around London quite lonely and at the time and not, I didn't, you know, didn't know what to do and I was playing Adam's Family Pinball on my own and this guy was watching and put me off and I told him to stop watching me and he, and he walked away quite sad oh. thought, that was my chance to make a friend playing Just, pinball yeah. but then having read your book so I'm quite glad as well. <laughs> my, mine uh, expressed his friendship and a desire to know me more by putting two 10p pieces on, on the machine and yeah. I said Oh, it's fine, I've got a couple of replays. He said, no, no, no they're, for, they're for you. Um, I said, oh, thanks very much. He said, that's fine. Said, I, I, I like watching people playing pinball. And I sort of listened thought, that's not sweet. It's <laughs> really sweet. Um, so I, you know, I played nothing. No, I've run out. He said, oh, never mind, let's go and get a drink somewhere. I said, okay. <laughs> and he said, well, come to me. I don't live that far away. <laughs> so innocent. <laughs> I'd have to, to be honest, two credits on Adam's Family Pinball. I'd have gone back with him. Yeah. <laughs> I only needed one. <laughs> um, and uh, my wife and I came to see. I'm married. It's unbelievable, isn't it? Really? Yeah, I'm married. <laughs> Lord, well done. Thank you. That was... it, took me, it took me 45 years, but I got married. I'm very impressed. That's wonderful. I, I had to test out a lot of the different women to get the, be- <laughs> get the best one. But not that many. Uh, but we came to see you in uh, Twelfth Night. 
Oh, thank you. Uh, but unfortunately not at the Globe, which I love going to see things. The Globe is fantastic. Because it makes you really um, appreciate what the Shakespeare plays really are. I think yeah. you're, kind of, you're playing to the... Yeah. Playing to the proles yeah. and the, <laughs> and doing the asides, but I've written you a Malvolia, which is one. It's one of my favourite. Um, I think I should play Toby Belch. I want to play Toby Belch. Oh, you'd be a wonderful. Toby I tell you what, I think would be a great idea, and that that wouldn't be me playing Toby Belch. Having watched it again, was the Muppets should do Twelfth Night. <laughs> and I think you should be Malvolia in it. But you know, when you know, like when they used to do the Treasure Island, and yeah, um, yeah. The, those were the best films. And Scrooge, the, the Scrooge. Scrooge, yeah. One human being having to. It's Michael Caine's best role. Yeah. I genuinely think so. he has to act against Muppets yeah. and when you have to act against Beaker going <laughs> and then you're just looking at him brings out all your resources it's just you kind of think this, is, this guy is an amazing actor I think you as Malvolio and then all the Fuzzy Bear as Feste yeah, Toby Miss Belch Miss Piggy Olivia obviously yeah. um, I, the, we are taking it to America in a few months we're going to do it get rid of Mike, Mark Rylance and all those shit right and the Muppets get Kermit in there on Broadway, yeah. you think it would do well? It yeah, might do. I think well, it would. We'll start off with Mike Rylance, and if he's not going well, yeah. we'll ring for the Muppets. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, I, love, I love this play, but my fascination with this play, it goes quite deep into the play. This might be boring for you. Just tell you, and you at home. Uh, I am, I'm quite obsessed with the character Fabian. Yes. How interesting. In the... Because in the, in the, in the, he doesn't appear... Until halfway through the play, like Act right. Two, Scene Six, or something, whatever, uh, and he suddenly is a friend of uh, Belch and Aguecheek. Cheek. Yes, he's a sort of, he, but he, he's not explained where he's coming. He from. has it against Malvolio because Malvolio once reported him for for cockfighting or bear fighting or something, so he joins in the revenge. And in uh, I don't know if anyone knows the play, but. Um, Essentially, a love letter, apparently from Olivia, the mistress of the house, is left lying on a bench, and Malvolio is wandering along, practising his own behaviour to, to, to his shadow, as, as the phrase has it, because he's a very pompous figure, and yet they cast me. Um, and, uh, and he finds this letter, and, and it's very cunningly written by Mariah, the, uh, the sort of maid of the house, as a revenge against Malvolio. It makes it look as if it's from Olivia. And he reads it out, and he's absolutely, he realises Olivia, his mistress, is in love with him. And he's so excited. And concealed in the little box tree are um, Mariah and... Um, not Toby Belch, is it? It's um, uh, Andrew Aguecheek and this chap, Fabian, who's just made his first appearance. Just appeared, I don't know. And previously, when they're setting up the plot, Mariah says... Um, so Andrew shall make one of the three and the fool can make the other yeah. and there is a fool uh, uh, Feste, the clan and so uh, my only feeling in it is that Feste has quite a long role and he was the actor Richard Armin um, who was a very important part of that uh, set up the, the king's players as they were about to become the queen it was in the queen's last year they performed it they were the Chamberlain's men and then King James came down from Scotland and uh, he basically said, this is too rustic a part for me. It's not very funny uh, just sitting in a bench, uh, sitting in a, in a beechwood tree all day. Um, get someone else to do it. And uh, <laughs> so they basically got someone else to do it because the, the next scenes are full of Feste singing and doing yeah. long, long things. So I, I think it's just... I mean, there are a few errors in the play, you could call them errors, yeah. which are... You, would only, you only notice when you've performed it about 50 times, <laughs> which I think shows... That, you know, Shakespeare what he was doing. But well, Sebastian says, doesn't know that Viola shares the same birthday as him and they're twins. That's well spotted <laughs> yeah. as well. He, he's, he's, he says, 
Um, yeah, that's exactly the day that my father died, when, when Viola made, made her 15th yeah. year. Yeah, so did I. <laughs> Unless she was born like two, five minutes to midnight and he was born wow. at five minutes past midnight. Wow. I think that's what Shakespeare was thinking. This is really, <laughs> this is really true. Um, there is a, a, an, a, a, a significant aristocrat, if you can have such a thing in the 21st century, um, uh, only in the sense that he owns an enormous amount of land and a large number of houses and it's a very important title and has with it the right to carry the white stick at the opening of Parliament. Um, and uh, it's an important marquisite. And he had recently twins. Um, not only that, they were identical twins. Not only that, they had to be born by caesarean section. So the doctor, you know, is it that way or that way? <laughs> Maybe it's that way. Um, uh, the doctor does the slice and opens up the lady's uh, opening. Um, and there are two babies. The first one to be pulled out will become the Marquis, will be worth hundreds of millions of pounds, will own houses, Scotland, castles, you know, everything. And the second one will just be called, you know, Lord Richard um, uh, and own nothing, because that's the way the aristocracy works. So how do you... Well, that one looks a little bit smarter than that. No, maybe not. And then it, it really was down to the first one that was pulled out. Yes. It's, if you put that in a novel, you do ridiculous. That's actually happened. I suppose it, you know, nature has its own way of deciding which one comes out first. It's still just but a lot of Not, with, not with a cesarean section, it, does No, no, yeah. No, it's, it's a very interesting point. It's hmm. good. Thank you. <laughs> Didn't well, expect to go there. Uh, Fabian has the best line in Twelfth Night as well. He really I'm does. I'm a big, a big fan of yeah. Fabian. I want to be Toby Welsh, but I might play Fabian one day. If this were played upon a stage now, I could condemn it as an improbable fiction. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a very good line, isn't it? It's, <laughs> it's kind of a postmodern. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's good. You're, yeah. you're going to have to watch. So we, can we get If this was uh, on, a, on a podcast, as if it were two comedians talking, <laughs> yeah. I could honestly say that that was an improbable fiction. Yes. Yeah. It's like saying that. It is like saying that. better. <laughs> I think we. I think we're better. We're I, think we could, I think we could do it better. He wasn't all that good at jokes, uh, Shakespeare. But that one's that one's not too bad. Um, I was I was going to lead somewhere there. I'll, I'll jump to an emergency question while I try and think all where right. my train of thought was going. Uh, th- people will want to know this. I'm bored of this question, but people will want to know if you had to choose between a hand made out of ham, yeah, or an armpit that dispensed sun cream. You're only allowed one of those two things. A hand? Which, a hand that's made out of ham. You can ask any subsidiary yeah. questions before you jump in and make a decision. Right. It's made of ham. You could eat it if you want it, and it yeah. will grow back. But only, right. Slowly. Probably if you ate the whole thing in a month, if you just had a nibble, it probably a day or so. Yeah. So you could, you, know, you could have a little... And it would still function as a hand. You could choose which hand it would be. I'm not going to force Right, to. right, OK. Uh, and... Uh, David Mitchell pointed out it probably would leave a residue, <laughs> a sort of meaty residue on everything you touch. Slime. But the way we do that as human beings, we, yeah. do, we do leave a slight residue on everything. Epithelial. Or an armpit that dispenses sun cream, you'd sort of do that, and whenever you, it, wouldn't, it would come out when you wanted, there'd be a, some kind of catch on it that you would flip across. <laughs> and you could have sun cream, but not unlimited, it's not like Willy Wonka. It's, Something Willy Wonka would invent, it's like a normal amount of sun cream that your body would produce. I... But enough to keep you in sun cream for, for probably the summer. I just so want to know, really, about your mind. <laughs> um, it, the questions are interesting in yeah. and of themselves, but nothing like as interesting as the mind whence they sprang. Um, 
Uh, I would go. I would go yeah. with the sun cream. I mean, yeah. I, both my hands are useful to me in all kinds of ways. Um, and Imagine to have them crumbly, have some extra breadcrumbed bits of fat on the end. But they go off. Um, I think uh, as long as it was on, you know, if you chopped it off and left it, somewhere um, it would go off. My mother's so. Jewish. I think she'd object. Yeah, there is that. Uh, I think you are the first. Yeah. <laughs> Don't Take bite your Jewish. nails. God will kill you. <laughs> I'm sure the Jews have something about sun cream in there somewhere. They have most... If you look in Leviticus, there's something about no sun cream when it's you're mostly, menstruating. It's mostly foreskins that they're obsessed yeah. with. I don't know why people quote the Bible as, uh, as being against homosexuality. It makes three glancing references of no particular savagery. But foreskins, my <laughs> God. Any of you in here with a foreskin, God hates you! <laughs> he really does. Um, you're in trouble, such trouble. Uh, did you see what George Takei did? Um, uh, the, the wonderful uh, Mr. Sulu, the original Mr. Sulu, uh, who's been, been married civil partnership uh, to his uh, um, fellow for, for some years and is an active uh, gay campaigner in America and I've been fearless about it, which is what's so wonderful. And there are there's these churches who put these God hate faggots things up. And there was one who was holding up a huge one which quoted Leviticus um, about it being an abomination. (laughs) And Take went up to it and said, we may burn in hell, but your daughters will be sold as slaves. You are wearing two types of wool. (laughs) Which in Leviticus is a terrible sin. And your daughters can be sold as slaves. Your daughters can be sold as slaves almost almost any, any infringement. And you can rape the daughters of your enemies... All these things are welcomed in the Bible. But just three little references to a um, little bit of um, flesh on flesh. Um, and anyway, no, don't get me started on that. No, I'd like to. Really? I thought that having, was part of the payment. I'd thought of having Grinder on in this room and just seeing if there's anybody. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was kind of thinking, because as I was reading your book, and I think you were talking about how, because you're quite an interesting Englishman, I think, and I think you're kind of, you, you always said it's a quintessentially English, but I think you sort of are quintessentially English in that you are the grandson, at least, of immigrants, yes. of Jewish immigrants, yes. uh, and uh, you're, you, but you're quite traditional, you sort of say I, what you want, all the pomp and ceremony of mm-hmm. everything to survive, Cricket. but yeah. then you are, you're not a Luddite, you're very into the future yes. and technology and changing and obviously you're gay and that's a uh, yeah. you're very kind of liberal in, in those views and that to me seems much more English than, yes you know because England a, is a nation of immigrants with a fleet made up of immigrants and, it's, yeah. and, and I kind of I was, as I was reading your book I was thinking if we were to change the political system slightly I think you're right keep it as it is but uh, you Stephen Fry <laughs> become essentially a, pres- a non-elected president <laughs> Of, of the United Kingdom. I think everyone would go with this. Uh, and uh, basically everything operates, it's sort of a bit like the role the Queen used to have, yeah. or the King used to have. But um, basically a law is passed by Parliament, they come to you and they say, is this all right? And you go, yeah, or no. Nah. <laughs> and whatever you, you say... You just haven't read it through. <laughs> yeah. And whatever you say is, is what, is what, is what the, happens. But they, everything else goes first. So you can't say, I'm going to make it a law. No, I'm not, don't give me absolute power, no. please. But they'll come to you with their laws. Yeah. And David Cameron will say, shall we allow gay marriage? 
And you, I, I'm guessing you'll say yes, but I'm is this a complicated way, David? <laughs> Just come out and ask, David. Yeah. Don't you don't have to dress it up in frills. Cameron is an amagram of romance. <laughs> <laughs> I think that will work and then when you die David Mitchell can do it he won't be as good but uh, it's, it's this <laughs> well, be more logical oh, yeah. so that means <laughs> oh so if you're saying that <laughs> <laughs> I would like to see that okay. now I, I do have to take issue with you about mm-hmm. uh, your fine novel Making History right I enjoyed the novel but if you were listening last week yeah, one, one woman over there was. Um, I was talking about the film Sliding Doors, ah, yes. which I do not like. It's not my In fact, I would go as far as saying it is my worst film I've ever seen. Wow. And I think in making history, you make a similar mistake to the making Sliding right. Doors. Which is? This is the worst thing you can say. This is, might be the worst is thing it an, Is it a, an anomaly uh, Well, it's a, I'm, very, I'm very into time travel. I'm very interested in time yeah. travel-based fiction. Uh, if you, uh, in, in making history without giving too much away, mm. uh, they find a way to go back and poison, uh, put a, mm. poison something that will a stop... A spermicidal pill yeah, into, in the water supply of Brunau in Austria. So that uh, Hitler's father won't be able to have Hitler. Yeah. But then they come back. And so the things are quite different, that's yeah. right. But a lot of things are... Are similar, yeah. and all the people are the same. None of those people will be alive, Steve. <laughs> oh, hang on. Yeah, I think you might have missed a well. My, no, if my, you change my, one thing in history, certainly if Moscow gets St. Petersburg gets bombed, nuclear bombed, yeah, then all the population of the earth will be different from in 50 years' time. It, not in that many generations. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Different people would meet up, different people would get married, there will, there will a different be. spermatozoon would get through. <laughs> there are differences. There, are, there is the old saying, if you go back you know, a million years and kick a stone, you'll come yeah. back. The whole history of the world would be different. And there's a famous um, Ray Bradbury story about a time machine which is controlled by scientists who have to wear special suits, um, uh, utterly clean, and they only come out on a little electric Gangplank, and they're allowed to look at historical events but cannot, of course, uh, interrelate or interfere with them. And one of them goes out who studies uh, dinosaurs and he looks um, carefully at the dinosaurs and his suit is completely sterilised and everything like that and his gangplank zooms back into his machine and, and then he presses the button to go back to the present and notices on his shoe there's a butterfly. He's trodden on a butterfly. And he gets back and, and things are different. There's a different president, there's a different system. The letter E is written backwards. And he, goes, <laughs> he goes slowly mad because he's changed the way. Yeah. He, doesn't, he can't predict how the world has changed. Things are very different. But this Everything would change straight point away. Of the, the point of the book is not a science fiction book. It's this. It's that I grew up no, with my mother saying... No, no, no. <laughs> I grew up... It's, it's called Making History. No. And, and I, grew up, I grew up with my mother... When she first showed me a big photograph of all our family when I was about nine or ten or something. And I said, Where, where's he and where's she and where's his cousins? And she said, well, well, Hitler killed them. And, of course, when you're a child, you think... Literally, I pictured Hitler with a, a dagger stabbing them. And then you learn of the awful truth of the, of the Holocaust. And you think, how, how could that have been stopped? And we easily say, yeah, it was Hitler, it was Hitler, it was Hitler. And I started reading lots of books about the rise of anti-Semitism in, in Europe. And in the 1890s, there were over 20 regular anti-Semitic publications in Vienna alone. And there were two lists of them, known T-H-U-L-I-S-T, and pan-German uh, organizations of extreme right-wingery. And they were rather halted by the war. 
And lots of people, of course, fought in that First World War. And then after the First World War, the Dorfschuss, you know, the, 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 um, the, 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 the stab in the back, Dorfschlag, the stab in the back, you know, the, 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 um, the, the reparations we made the Germans pay, the poverty they had, and so on. And the Deutsche, the Deutsche Arbeiters, um, the, the, the Deutsche, the party became the Nazi party, was one of literally scores of parties. And it just so happened, for various historical reasons, that Hitler's rose above the others. Now, all I wanted to think was that if this... if It was not really even the time machine. It was just the, the ability to send a molecular structure back to a particular place at a particular time. So this scientist sends um, a spermicidal pill into the water supply. Um, and all that means is, uh, really, that the whole village of... Um, uh, was able, unable to have babies for quite a long while. Um, one of them being Hitler, who was never born. But of course, there still would have been, after the First World War, huge numbers of anti-Semitic, right-wing, fascistic parties that would have got together and would have beaten the communists and would have come to power. And the one mistake, ironically, I say the one mistake, <laughs> the biggest mistake Hitler made, it really was gigantic, <laughs> if, if, you, if you want him to win the war, was the, were the Nuremberg um, Acts, which disallowed any Jew from holding academic tenure anywhere in Germany. And all the inventors of the atom bomb, all the physicists and mathematicians and engineers, really, almost without exception, who were behind, <laughs> were at Göttingen Institute and other, such other places, uh, Heisenberg and so forth, were German Jews. And so they left Germany. And they went to America, where they worked with Oppenheimer on the Manhattan Project. And Germans were left, uh, uh, him himself said that Jewish science was fake science. He refused to believe Einstein. So they went down the deuterium oxide route, as you know, the heavy water route. They thought heavy water would be the answer to an atom bomb. Uh, it was a nuclear physicist. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Just, he's, we always have him here in Did case you know? uh, any nuclear physicist stuff comes up. <laughs> Everything all right so far? Yeah, okay. Good. You can't teach an old dog nuclear <laughs> physics. Um, uh, but uh, so imagine you had a smarter, it's a horrible thought, but a smarter leader, one who wasn't quite so fanatically anti Semitic in Germany. He might have been rather anti Semitic. So he would, um, he would have some of the Jews that were still alive, the ones who were sort of Hitler's age, uh, or just older than Hitler's age, who would have been all the Jews, you know, plenty of the Jews, the scientific Jews were younger than Hitler, so they, they'd, be, they'd be alive, and um, lots and lots of them, and he would get them to work on a bomb. And by the late 1930s, the, the Reich would have had a nuclear bomb, and America wouldn't, and there would be absolute rulers of the world. And then he would turn his attention to the Jews, and he'd think, look at all these bloody Jews, and we don't like them, we want to kill them all. Why don't we use that strange water we found in Brunau that makes men sterile? We'll make all the Jewish men drink that water. So the, the, the awful irony is that, that the sending of the water, it sent a magic water, which scientists had tried to analyse and they'd found a spermicidal pill, so he could wipe out all Jews in one go without death camps by making them drink that water. Now that's, as it were, it's a way of saying almost, we're better off having had Hitler, which sounds mad... It sounds bad, but we are where we are now for good or ill, and there was a huge amount of ill. But don't for a minute assume that if that particular egg hadn't hit that particular sperm, or the other way around, I believe it's the sperm that does the work, but you know what I mean. Um, uh, don't assume 
that, that, that history would be wonderful. No, of course. But, yeah. <laughs> everything would be different. And the, order, and the whole. The minute you've changed anything, anyone who wasn't alive, that my grandma would still be alive, unless you got killed in one of the atomic bombs or whatever, but anyone who wasn't alive, the minute you've changed it, every meeting changes, well, every, every intercourse changes. There are no Jews alive when he comes back. There are literally no Jews. But the character still is alive, and he wouldn't be alive, I don't think. Maybe he would in the time frame. It's a small... All I'm just saying is, you know, it makes the same mistake that Goodnight Sweetheart makes, and I, that is not... I don't, that is, it's just not something that I would want put on my gravestone and it will be on your if I outlive you yeah. it will be on your gravestone Star Trek. I'm just going to write in into Bex that it was killing it making history was good except and then I'll write an essay about that <laughs> it's a good book all the books are good you've got to read they're all fantastic um, and you can't sing no I certainly can't not She's, a note nary a note but you could sing when a hypnotist made you sing? Well, it was a peculiar thing. I had to, I say I had to sing. Every week, uh, back in the 80s, in the early days of Channel 4, they used to do a series called Saturday Live, or occasionally Friday Live, I can't remember, it changed its name according to the date of broadcast, pretty obviously, and it was live. And, um, and my colleague Hugh Laurie and I would do it, would write a sketch, and we'd perform the sketch in front of the audience every every time. And, and um, Ben would host it, Ben Elsmith host it, and it's where Harry Enfield made his name. He did his uh, wonderful kebab shop owner, um, Stavros, in it, and Lazamani, and so on. And, uh, and Hugh and I did our humoresque sketches. And one of them, on about a Tuesday or Wednesday, we were putting the sketch together, and it was, we quite liked it, but it, I suddenly said, no, hang on, this means I've got to sing. And you said, yes, you'll be fine. I said, no, but you know, I can't sing on live on television. I will freeze up. I will absolutely freeze. He said, no, you won't, no, you won't. And I said, we've got, we've got to change, we've got to find a new sketch. He said, well, we're doing a rehearsal tomorrow with a crew. And I said, I said oh. and then he said, go and see a hypnotist or something. I think he was joking, but I went to the Yellow Pages and, and, and there was a Hungarian... Um, which I just thought sounded, you know, more likely. Um, um, Laszlo or something or other. So uh, it was in Maddox Street uh, in the centre of London. So I made an appointment and I went to see him. And uh, he said, and what is your, your problem? And I said, well, my problem is I can't sing. He said, I want, you to, I want you to put a hand on each knee. And you're feeling already, aren't you? It's, it's fascinating that the, the flesh of the hand is melting into the knee. It's becoming one, and you can close your eyes now and feel as your no difference, no difference between your hand and your knee, and you're now being lowered down a well, lowered <laughs> down a well, and you can see the round light that's coming through, and and it's getting smaller and smaller, and it's getting darker and darker until you're really in the complete dark, and only my voice is here with you, and now you're. <coughs> going to tell me what it is that is your problem. And, I, and the thing is, I'm aware of it, but I'm also aware that I am in a trance. It's a very strange feeling. So I say, I, I can't sing, and tomorrow night, live on television, I have to sing. He said, why do, why do you think you can't sing? I said, I know I can't. My father was a chorister at St. Paul's Cathedral. He has a glorious voice. He's a musician. and I love music, and whenever I try and join in, people tiptoe away and um, I just know that I can't hear I can hear that I'm not singing even 
He said, when was your first memory that you couldn't sing? And I said, well, it was in, I was seven years old and I was sent away to a, a prep school in Gloucestershire. And we used to have this thing called Kong Prak. What is this Kong Prak? And I said, well, it, it, I think it means congregational practice. And it's on the Saturday you prepare for any of the hymns on the Sunday. So I said, yes. And, and I was singing away. It was my first term and I was very nervous. I was 200 miles from home and I was seven and I was a bit shy. And I was singing this hymn that I didn't know. And a boy stopped and said, sir, sir, Fry's singing flat. And I didn't know what flat meant. And, and what happened next? He said, well, the music master said, on your own, Fry, and played the, the music. And I started to sing, and everybody laughed. Oh. And I went very pink. And so I suddenly became Hungarian. <laughs> and, <laughs> I went very pink. And, and, I, and I had... I had completely forgotten this episode. I mean, I, no, no time for you know a lot of these memory regressions that I was once clear, Cleopatra's handmaiden in previous lives. But I do think you can remember things in your own life that you might have forgotten under hypnosis quite clearly. And he said, "So that that is the reason then that you you have this fear of humiliation when singing." He said, "I'm I'm going to take this away from you. So next time, when when it is tomorrow, you have to sing." I said, "Yes." He said, what is the, oh, how do you say in English, the, um, the words that lead up to what you say, what, the cue? Yes, the cue. What is the cue for you to have to sing? I, I said, well, my friend Hugh um, says, hit it, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, hit it, bitch. And I said, yes. He said, so th- this is what is going to happen tomorrow. He said, tomorrow you, you might think you're nervous, but a part of you knows that it's all going to be fine because when the moment comes and your friend says, hit it, bitch, <laughs> all the fears, all the fears will disappear and you will lose yourself in the music and you will sing happily and lustily and in tune. He says, now my voice is a rope and it's going to pull you out of the well and you can see the light growing at the top and I'm pulling you out and pulling you out and pulling you out and I will come backwards from then and then you will be awake and so I sort of woke up and I said, that was fascinating. I said, and he said, do you remember what we were speaking of? I said, yes, I do. I remember the boy's name was Kirk as well. It was the name of the prefect. It was really extraordinary. So I go back and tell Hugh the story. We had dinner that night and he said, great. He said, I wonder if I should change the cue. <laughs> you change that cue. Line, I will stab you in the neck. <laughs> but anyway, it, it, there's somebody. Somebody sent it to me. I don't know if it's on YouTube or whatever it is, but somebody actually sent it to me um, the, it, uh, when I told this story later. Um, and, um, and there is you saying, get your pitch, and I do sort of sing. But. If you want me to sing now, you'll have to call up Hugh and get him to say it on the phone. Has to be, has to be Hugh saying I think it. he's in Minsk or somewhere okay. doing, doing his blues, blues album. No, I think he's just back in England, actually. I'm a bit worried that people listening to the podcast might now have been hypnotised. Because that is... If they're listening on the audience, kill David Cameron. Kill... Now, when you hear, hit it, bitch. Kill... You'll kill David Cameron. Uh, so, so what's it like having a double-act partner who goes on to be much more successful than you, even though... Even though everyone knows he's nowhere near as good as you are. Let's, and you're clearly the funny one. What is that uh, like? Let's, let's, 
let's call him up and ask him. Um, the, the, uh, I don't want to uh, sound over soppy, but the beauty of, uh, of the relationship that I have with you, Laurie, is that uh, I, I, I can say this in all honesty. I love him, and I think, he, and I know he loves me. And, and whenever we're ill or unhappy, we comfort each other. I'm godfather to his three children. Um, I have always known he is a, a simply inexplicably great talent in all directions, aside from his musical gifts and his acting powers and his comic genius. He is, I can honestly say, the wisest man I know. He has a phenomenal gift for insight into things. And if I have a problem, a sort of logical problem or a problem of life problem, um, I, will ask, I will ask him advice. And he is, he is simply extraordinary. And his wife is probably my second best friend, which makes it even happier. And um, his three children are Your third, good fourth friends. and fifth best yeah. <laughs> I know... It sounds ridiculous. We spend weird. every Christmas <laughs> since since the children were born. The oldest child is now 23, and he's oh. never had a Christmas, not at my house or, or ones we've had together. So it, it sounds all corny, but fortunately we never ever had a row or any, any trouble. Do you so. think he could get me the phone number of 13 from house? <laughs> you do know she's lesbian. Well, that's all right. Uh, what, the character, <laughs> are we talking about the character or the actual woman? I don't mind. I don't, I'm very, <laughs> no, you know, I kind no, of the character. Like, sorry, well, yeah. she's bisexual. The yeah, character, so that's ideal. Isn't that uh, a, so? Uh, isn't that Olivia? Olivia Wilde? Yeah, it's Olivia yes, Wilde. I've got Olivia Wilde's number if you want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> she's uh, engaged to someone else. She is, yeah. but, and I'm married to someone else. But the beauty is, me and my wife have. Uh, we're allowed five celebrities. <laughs> That we're allowed to have sex with. And the thing about that, you can't usually meet them, but I'm one step away. <laughs> Olivia Wilde is, including my wife, the most beautiful woman in the world. Uh, no, including my wife. She's more course, attractive I'm than sure my she wife. Is. <laughs> Your wife is, in some senses, more in the audience. She is. She's very. She's very sexy, and uh, it would be. Good. I think we. So I, I do. I mean, if she could stay in character, because I kind of fancy. I've got my five R. But you've got Louis Walsh changed. in the audience. It does. Don't see. There's Louis Walsh. Oh yeah, it is. It is. Yeah, yeah, let's yeah. get him on there. You know, a lot of celebrities come along. There he is. That's Louis yeah. Walsh there. Um, um, but uh, with his wife. Yeah. That's a surprise. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> she's turned so far my, away. My five are... She's got good ones as well, but she'll never meet them. And my five are... And when it changes, yeah. I like Amy Pond, but the character of Amy Pond. I don't want to go out uh, with the actress right. who looks like a nightmare. <laughs> so, if she, obviously, I will have to... The actress will have to be involved, but I'm, yeah. prepared, to go, I'm prepared to have sex with her, but only she'll stay in character. For the whole Fair time. enough. Anne Widdicombe is my second one. Because... <laughs> I thought, you know, I like a challenge. And, yeah. you know, it's quite, it's quite difficult to find a virgin these days. That's true. But I think the whole point of Anne Widdicombe is that she should stay a virgin <laughs> and be a bit of a shock for those suicide bombers. <laughs> I can't decide, I can't decide, Olivia Wilde, either as 13 or, probably as 13 or whatever, I think she's going out with some bloke from Saturday Night Live now, so she likes comedians, and I'm, after this podcast, I'm going to be divorced, so it's (laughs) just step by step, we're getting close, she likes uh, Sawyer from Lost. Oh really? Yeah. Do you like sort of? Yes, cross? I know. I know. But you know, I think I've got a little. You know, you've got that look. I'm a little yeah, bit yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. Brad Pitt's Brad Pitt's copied my yeah. my look. He doesn't pull off. Well, as well as I. Do. Women most like him, man, is, yeah. is wit and, and and money and charm. So surely, she's got to love 
Tyrion, um, <laughs> Peter Dinklage from the Game of Thrones. <laughs> yeah. Do you, do you think she quite? Do you like? Would you like Peter Dinklage, Katie? For he's the you know he's the he's Tyrion Lannister the from, from Game Lannister. of Thrones. The, the, they call him the Imp. Yeah, hey. yeah, he's nice. I've done. He is, he's he on my amazing. list. I'm going to put him on my list as well. Yeah. I've got a couple of spares at the bottom. Well, yes, because he only counts as half, so you can know. <laughs> um, I think that's fair. I have a I have a five percent, as I call it, right. which are which are women. Okay. Um, that there are certain women that I just go, yes, I. Oh, absolutely which which know. women do you go for? Um, Anne Widdicombe? No, Anne Widdicombe. Come on! Amazingly, is not on that list. I tell you, if you did a celebrity sex tape with you and Anne Widdicombe, that would go what? That would go ballistic. <laughs> I sort of did the equivalent of debate on the Catholic Church with her. The cunts. Um, um, this won't mean anything to you, but Rowan Atkinson's wife, Sinitra, yeah. is definitely one. And um, Nigella Lawson, I know that's obvious, but but I, I really would. I think. I think she's, um, <laughs> Uh, and if, if you, you don't you don't know the others, but no. they, I just they, I just think you can't have your mates' wives. No. They've got to be. They've got to be. No. That's going to lead to all kinds of trouble. It's got to be celebrities. <laughs> I know it's a celebrity's wife, yeah. but that, it's different if you are a proper full-on celebrity because yeah, because they all meet each other. You're, you're posh and a celebrity, and those are the two basically groups that just <laughs> fuck each other regardless of what <laughs> regardless of what social contracts have been. <laughs> I met Jonathan Aitken when I did, um, I did a, I did a programme where I had to, uh, I did an Oxford-Cambridge boat race with celebrities, uh, <laughs> of which I was one, and Emma Kennedy was one, which shows you the level we're going to. Toby Young was one, and Jonathan Aitken was in it, but he was, he was too old to row, so, and everyone else was, I was the tallest of the other celebrities, I'm five foot six and a half. It's and all jo- cocks and no... Um, yeah. <laughs> but Jonathan Aitken was our cocks. So we had a six-foot-tall cocks <laughs> and loads of tiny little rows. So we, we, were, we did compare ourselves to Lord of the Rings, in fact, as we were, as we were playing. But he, I mean, his life is very, very... Jonathan Aitken, yeah. yes, indeed. Very, in fact, he turned out that his daughter realised someone at school looked quite like her. The daughter, it was the daughter of Khashoggi, the, the oh arms dealer. God, no. And, By uh, her own father. Yeah, and she said, we're very similar, aren't we? And then they realised eventually that Jonathan Aitken was... Whoa. Was, I think that's common knowledge. <laughs> yeah. Oh, good. I don't think he told me. We used to, you know, we, 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 I bonded a little bit with Jonathan Aitken. I'd never seen him again since, but when no. we, we won this Oxford-Cambridge boat race, <laughs> and, I, and I hugged Jonathan Aitken, which is not oh. something I ever thought would, would happen, wearing spandex, which is something else <laughs> I, think, I never ever thought would happen. But uh, it was interesting. I'll ask you another of uh, Ben's questions before Wait. I forget. This is a great question. What is it like being Stephen Fry? <laughs> <laughs> It's a very hard question to answer. If I answer in a, in a negative way, it sounds ungrateful because um, I have had an extraordinarily fortunate life and I've been able to do an enormous number of things that most people don't get the opportunity to do in terms of travel, meeting people, uh, occasions, things. You know, I get invited to ridiculous, uh, would you like to drive a Formula One car and all that sort of thing. And... and um, I kind of have to pinch myself occasionally. Oh, it's another invitation to the Royal Box at Wimbledon. Should I go this year or not? You know, and I think, no, come on, come on. They're lucky. There are people who would give anything for this kind of opportunity. Um, another part of me, and I've made this uh, boringly plain in, in television programmes and other things I won't wank on about, is that uh, my, I'm the victim of my own moods, uh, more than most people are, perhaps, uh, in as much as I have a, 
I have a, a condition which requires me to take medication so that I don't get either too hyper or too depressed to the point of suicide. Uh, I don't um, go as far as to tell you that I attended it last year. Um, so that I'm not always happy. This is the first time I've said this in public, but I thought I might as well. I'm president of mind, and um, the whole point is... In my role, as I see it, is not to be shy and forthcoming about the morbidity and the genuine nature of, of um, the likelihood of death amongst people with certain mood disorders. If, if they don't look after it, if they, don't, if they think they can do without the medication or the regular visits to a doctor, and without taking care of themselves. And um, it, was, it was a close run thing. Um, I took a huge number of pills with a huge number of vodka, and um, the mixture of them made my body convulse so much uh, that I, I broke four ribs. But I was still unconscious. Unfortunately, the producer I was filming at the time came into the hotel room and uh, I was found in a sort of unconscious state and taken back to England and looked after. Um, now, you may say, how can anybody who's got it all uh, be so stupid as to want to end it all? Um, that's the point. There is no why. It's not the right question. There's no reason. Uh, if, if there were a reason for it, uh, you could reason someone out of it and you could tell them why they shouldn't take their own life. And some of the most brilliant minds there have been have taken their lives, writers, artists, and people who are not particularly famous but are wonderful people. I like to think that if I had children, I would think harder about doing it, but I know people who have children who've done it, or did know people who've had children who've taken their own lives. Sometimes it's the expression I imagine on my mother and father's face, both of whom are alive and happy, um, that, would, that stops me. But there are other occasions when I can't stop myself, or at least I feel I can't. And you may say, well, that's what friends are for. You, take, you talk, talked about you, and, and why didn't you just call him up? And all my friends, when they heard about this family, when they eventually heard about it, said, came, came to visit me in the hospital, said, well, why didn't you call? And I said, it's a... I said, it's a very odd thing, but put it this way. It's a, it's a cheap and silly way of putting it, but it's just as true. Uh, think of your very best friend, your very, very best friend. And suppose you suddenly noticed you had a massive and really disturbing genital wart. Would you show it to your very best friend? <laughs> no. No, you might show it to a stranger, a doctor, um, uh, a genital urinary specialist. Or to Dr. Christian, I suppose, on <laughs> embarrassing bodies or in the street, in his case. But the weird thing is, although friendship is what Ralph Waldo Emerson called the masterpiece of nature, and it is a thing we all celebrate, oddly enough, it doesn't solve things like that. So uh, although it's terrible to bring the conversation down, what it's like to be Stephen Fry is a very mixed and peculiar thing. Uh, if unmedicated, there are times when I'm so exuberant, so hyper that I can go three or four nights without sleeping and I'm writing and I'm doing stuff and I'm, I'm so grandiose, I'm so full of self-belief that it's almost impossible to deal with me. I can't stop speaking. I'm, I'm incredible. Um, I go on shopping sprees. Fortunately, one of the common signs of, of mania or hypermania, as it's known, is sexual exhibitionism. I don't have that <laughs> as one of my, one of my brands, but, uh, but others do. But I do have shopping. I remember once going into Bond Street and I came back uh, in a taxi with something like 17 shopping bags and I put them in my bedroom and about three days later I sort of switched phase into the depressed and um, I came out of that well, okay um, and then realised that I hadn't opened any single one of these shopping bags and I threw them all away 
I mean, I just left them out in the street. I hope someone picked them up. But I left them out in the street. And um, there may be some people in the audience who can relate to this and others who know people who have the same issue. And I know there are plenty of, uh, for everyone who is sympathetic about it, there'll be some Melanie Phillips who says, sort of, why don't they just walk it off? You know, <laughs> honestly, it's just some celebrity designer disease. Um, so um, when I'm conscious, when I'm rational, I realise that being Stephen Fry is a very... Wonderfully happy thing to be able to be. People are extraordinarily nice to me. That's the, the, the thing that I, I honestly most get out of it is the, you know, the average cab I get into or the person who stops me in the street is, is not just, oh, can I have a photograph? But they, they really say nice things, um, you know, and, and um, because of books or whatever, they say nice things that maybe relate to their own children or to their own lives, which makes one happy to have made a difference. Um, and so... Yeah, mostly it's, it's great. But there are times, and I don't know if you've ever had this, Richard, where you're on stage. I, I spoke about this in the Manic Depression, but, um, but when, I'm, when I'm doing QI, and I'm going, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and the next question, and inside I'm going, I want to fucking die. I want to fucking die. I'm well, so yeah, it is weird that you have to carry on regardless of yeah. what's going on in your life and what, you, what you're feeling. Mm-hmm. I, for me, I just kind of... I, 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 I mean, I have de- certainly had... Uh, lonely times and depressed times and I think like, I went through depressions not on any level of the same as that but through, throughout I think because it is a, it's a difficult job because you're high and low yeah. uh, for me I'm, I'm on stage and I've got like voices in my head going what if you forget how to speak now what if you yeah. what so, if you forget how to form letters and you know and there's a, what, what if you just forget what's coming up next yeah, and there's a kind of evil voice in my head trying to throw me off yes which, no, um, yeah. I, yeah I did the Sydney Opera House um, I, I somehow agreed I don't have an act. I'm not a stand-up comedian. I don't have an act as such. Um, and I was doing a literary festival in Hong Kong, and then I was going down to New Zealand to start filming on The Hobbit. And they, they, they said, would I do uh, an evening at the Opera House? And I thought, well, it's on the way, virtually. I might as well <laughs> stop off at Sydney. And, they, um, and so I said yes. Um, and I was wandering around this nice hotel that looks right out across at the... Opera House and thinking, oh, two thousand people, it's going to be really good fun. And I thought, but what am I going to say? <laughs> I, I, don't, I literally don't know what I'm going to say. Um, and I, I was so, so astonished by my complete lack of preparedness that I started to find it funny. <laughs> so I eventually ended up in the uh, in the wings of the Opera House, and there was a everyone right night. You got your yeah? I said yeah. I said. Uh, how are you going to signal um, the interval? I said, um, you'll know when it's... You'll know. <laughs> um, and I came out and I, I literally said... They, they, they were very kind, I suppose. I said, it's wonderful to be here. I want you to know that it's perfectly possible that in any minute my mouth may open and close like a guppy <laughs> and no sound will come out of it at all. And you are all entitled to your money back. And they all come laugh. <laughs> and then I asked someone if they had an iPhone. And I said, can you set it to um, timer? And in 40 minutes, give me a wave. And, and then I, I did, I just talked. And I, Christ knows what, and the extraordinary thing is that they'd sold it out so much that I had to do the second night in the, <laughs> in the, in the opera house as well. And then I, if you've ever been to Australia, you'll know this, Melbourne, of course, will not tolerate someone uh, from Britain being in Sydney and then not going to Melbourne. So they set up a Facebook page demanding that I come to Melbourne. So I hired to the theatre in Melbourne and did that twice. 
And Phil McIntyre, whom I'm sure you know, is yeah. a, he's a, he's a, he's a, he's a promoter, he does a lot of comedy. Um, he calls me up somehow uh, in Melbourne and says, So, you've got Mac then? And I said, Well, I don't know if it's an act exactly, but I got away with um, you know, these four performances. He said, um, It's seven. I said, What do you mean, seven? I bought the Albert Hall three nights for you. <laughs> <laughs> And, that's it. and to this day, I don't know what I said in any of them. It was different each time, and I don't really know what it was. But. Yeah. Well, yeah, you have that. To, when I do a new Adam show, which I'm doing now, I'm just working. Well, mm. I mean, I've got my first preview on Sunday, and I've got no idea what I'm going to say. So the, fir- the first few shows are kind of like that, though not usually, admittedly, in the Sydney Opera House. <laughs> uh, but uh, Here's a good opening we- joke for you. Yeah. <laughs> Ladies and <laughs> gentlemen, I was in the attic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And I found an old sex offenders registry in the attic. It was extraordinary. I thought, what's that doing there? It was a TV Times, 1973. <laughs> um, well, I'm, I'm slightly annoyed that Ben's questions are getting much, much better answers than mine <laughs> every single time. I'm worried if you do kill yourself that me tipexing the plot... Problems with making history are going to look a bit sick <laughs> when I desecrate your grave. So I hope you will look after Full yourself. Uh, well, on genuine regular medication, I've, I've succumbed and it seems to be working. No, but uh, you know, I mean, everyone really fucking loves you. But it's a, it's a very important. Um, I think we can uh, look on it today, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much to my room guest, Stephen Fry. Listening to Richard Harry's Extra Square Theatre podcast with me, Richard Harry, and my special guest, who's only bloody Stephen Fry. How did that happen? Uh, the music you're listening to is by Pest. Quite a nice beat, hasn't it? Thanks to Irish Mark and the Beach Comedy Guide, and to Go Faster Strike, Chris Evans, not that one, and all his minions from Wales. His nameless minions who will never be named. Uh, this was produced by Ben Walker. Uh, it was a fuzz. Go Faster Stripe and Sky Potato production for the internet. Hooray! How do you like them, Sky Potatoes? If you've enjoyed listening to this free podcast, then you have many opportunities to reward me and the people here who are helping me uh, by buying some stuff elsewhere. You can buy the video of all the podcasts at gofasterstripe.com slash podcast, where you can also buy lots of my DVDs and books if you want to pay, get some payback that way. Uh, I'm also doing a new show called We're All Gonna Die, which is at the Edinburgh Fringe, uh, all the way through August at the Pleasance Beyond at 8 o'clock. You can come to see that. You'll get a free DVD and a free programme if you come to that as well, because I like giving stuff away for nothing. Uh, and, uh, yeah, that's about it, isn't it. I don't know what else is going on, Ben, anything? No, that's it. So, uh, if you... <laughs> no, next week. Next week's guests, very important, are John Lloyd, the producer of QI, Not That I Got News, Spitting Image, Blackadder. He's worked in everything. He was the original host of I Got News For You. He's amazing. Uh, and also Mary Beard, the classicist, archaeologist, and TV presenter. A very fantastically funny woman, uh, and very interesting. It'll be a very proper... It's going to be a very intellectual show next week, and there will be no rude questions, because I have to impress my intellectual guests. So tune in next week. Pay some money for something, you cheapskates. Bye.